Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and together we're working through the sermons preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a Victorian pastor and preacher, a man gifted by God for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, a man whose sermons, when we hear them, point us to the Lord Christ, help us to preach the Lord Christ, teach us more about the Lord Christ. Today's podcast is on Sermon 460. The title is Repentance and Faith Inseparable, and it was preached on Sunday morning, the 13th of July, 1862, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. The text on this occasion was Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, Repent ye and believe the gospel. It's our featured sermon this week. Each week we read through a selection of sermons, seven at a time. This week, 458 through to 464. And each week there's a featured sermon. And this week, 460, where we zero in to try and uh, find more of Christ, to understand him better and to learn from Spurgeon, I hope, how to preach him more effectively. Now, this is one of those sermons of Spurgeon's which, in which he dives straight in. Something he almost always does is to tell people what he's going to tell them. He will almost invariably say, now let's look at these two or three or four things in this text. On other occasions, and they're much rarer, he just launches straight in. And that's what he does on this occasion. Now, not only does he launch straight into the sermon without outlining or giving us a skeleton, but he also does so after an extremely brief introduction. He tells us that before us we have the sum and substance of Jesus Christ's whole teaching, the alpha and omega of his entire ministry, and coming from the lips of such an one at such a time with such peculiar power, let us give the most earnest heed, and may God help us to obey them from our inmost hearts." So Spurgeon's straight in there with this very intense, very definite uh, call to us. You need to pay attention to these things. His first point immediately, I commence by remarking that the gospel which Christ preached was very plainly a command, repent ye and believe the gospel. Now he gives some uh, concessions or um, at least some shows some awareness that our Lord does condescend to reason, that he does invite men, that he does persuade them by telling and forcible arguments, that he does entreat them. But although he condescends to reason, to persuade, to invite and to beseech, still his gospel hath in it all the dignity and force of a command. And if we would preach it in these days as Christ did, we must proclaim it as a command from God, attended with a divine sanction, and not to be neglected save at the infinite peril of the soul. Now, Spurgeon is contending in part, one of the theological battles which he had to fight was with the hyper-Calvinists, the very high Calvinists of his day, who would have said that the command to repent and believe was to trespass upon the divine prerogative of God, that a sinner should not be commanded to believe, what was sometimes called duty faith. Now, we may not have the uh, the same particular challenge today, at least many of us, but it is strange then that perhaps we are just as rare in proclaiming this command from God to repent and believe as some were in Spurgeon's day. 
Perhaps our problem is that we have so become afraid of authority or perhaps afraid of the response of society to authority that we do not command in the name of Jesus Christ that sinners should repent and believe the gospel. Spurgeon says that the gospel contemplates invitations, entreaties and beseechings, but it also takes the higher ground of authority. Repent ye is as much a command of God as thou shalt not steal. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ has as fully a divine authority as thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. The same God before whom Sinai was moved and was altogether on a smoke, that same God who proclaimed the law with sound of trumpet, with lightnings and with thunders, speaks to us more gently, but still as divinely, through his only begotten Son, when he says to us, Repent and believe the gospel. So why is this? asks the preacher. And Spurgeon here is entering into that uh, knack he has of essentially uh, governing and framing a conversation with his congregation. Why is this, dear friends? Why has the Lord made it a command to us to believe in Christ? There is a blessed reason. Many souls would never venture to believe at all if it were not made penal, that is a matter of a penalty or a punishment, to refuse to do so. Have I a right to believe? asks the awakened sinner. Am I permitted to trust Christ? This question, says Spurgeon, is put aside once for all and should never irritate a broken heart again. You are commanded by God to do it, therefore you may do it. And so that the very fact of this command takes us away from some of the fears and doubts that we might otherwise have with regard to the call to repent and to believe. To all the nations of the earth, then, says Spurgeon, we ought to sound forth this decree from God. O men, Jehovah that has made you, he who gives you the breath of your nostrils, he against whom you have offended, commands you this day to repent and believe the gospel. He gives his promise, he be that believes and is baptized shall be saved, and he adds the solemn threatening, he that believes not shall be damned. And so, says Spurgeon, offend or please, as God shall help me, I will preach every truth as I learn it from the word, and I know if there be anything written in the Bible at all, it is written as with a sunbeam, that God in Christ commands men to repent and to believe the gospel. Now, he acknowledges he's not suggesting anything other than this. Without the regenerating work of God the Holy Ghost, no man ever will be obedient to this command, but still it must be published for a witness against them if they reject it. And while publishing God's command with all simplicity, we may expect that he will divinely enforce it in the souls of those whom he has ordained unto eternal life. So in enforcing this command, in preaching this command, in proclaiming that men must repent and believe, Spurgeon is not for one moment suspending the sovereign operations of the Holy Spirit. He recognises that without his work, no one will repent and believe. But that's not so much his business as it is to go and preach the gospel to every creature. And so that not only for, for, sin, for uh, Christians to go and proclaim it, but then for sinners as they hear it to receive it, that there will be no excuse if they do not do what they are commanded to do. Now he moves on, that while the gospel is a command, it is a twofold command explaining itself. Repent and believe the gospel. So, first point, it is a command. Secondly, it's a twofold command 
and it explains itself. And Spurgeon wants to look at the uh, two elements now of this command, the first repenting and the second believing. Now, he says that he knows some excellent brothers who in their zeal to preach up simple faith in Christ have felt a little difficulty about the matter of repentance. And I've known some of them who've tried to get over their difficulty by softening down the apparent hardness of the word repentance. A change of mind. Now, I think you may find... Uh, it's certainly been my experience that in evangelicalism generally, this is almost invariably our, our go-to summary of repentance. I've heard, I don't know, a hundred sermons at least, maybe more, where, where someone has said, now repenting is just changing your mind. Now, apparently, says Spurgeon, they interpret in repentance to be a somewhat slighter thing than we usually conceive it to be, a mere change of mind, in fact. Now, I think you might use that language, but you have to explain what it means. And if, as Spurgeon is concerned, by doing it, you reduce it down to something that it never can be, that you, you undermine its very essence, then we have a problem. For, says Spurgeon, the Holy Ghost never preaches repentance as a trifle and the change of mind or understanding of which the gospel speaks is a very deep and solemn work and must not on any account be depreciated. Repentance means sorrow for and hatred of sin. Or else, says Spurgeon, I've read my Bible to little purpose. To repent does mean a change of mind. There's the, the reality, but then, says Spurgeon, here's the explanation, it is a thorough change of the understanding and all that is in the mind so that it includes an illumination, an illumination of the Holy Spirit, and I think it dis includes a discovery of iniquity and a hatred of it, without which there can hardly be genuine repentance. We must not undervalue repentance. And here's Spurgeon's doctrinal and pastoral precision, one of the, uh, the things that really comes to the fore in this sermon. So he says, let's first of all then take this command that explains itself with regard to repentance. And what he's going to do is he's going to talk about some of the things that repentance isn't and then what repentance really is. There are three things here that repentance isn't then, three false notions, having explained and enforced that it's a, a profound and a deep thing, he says that the unbelief which leads a man to think that his sin is too great for Christ to pardon it is not the repentance meant here. So he's saying that some people might say, well, I'm a sinner, but my sin is too great for Christ to pardon it. And he says there may be some remorse there, there may be some distress there, but that's not the kind of repentance of which our Lord speaks. Many who truly repent are tempted to believe that they are two great sinners for Christ to pardon, but that is not part of their repentance. It is sin. It is a great and grievous sin, for it undervalues the merit of Christ's blood. God the Holy Ghost never did teach a man that his sins were too great to be forgiven, says our preacher, for that would be to make God the Holy Spirit to teach a lie. And perhaps either we as Christians or we as preachers may have given uh, the wrong impression or got the wrong impression that if we're, th if we're thinking or feeling it is not possible for that person or even 
this person, me, myself, to be pardoned for my sin. There's too many of them. They're too dark. They're too gross. They're too vile. They're too foul. I've gone on too long. That's not repenting. That's sinful despair because God in Christ can take away those transgressions. So don't be tempted to think that a sorrow that, as it were, carries you past hope is genuine repentance. But there's another spurious or empty repentance, and that's the one that makes the sinner dwell upon the consequences of his sin rather than the sin itself, and that keeps the person from believing. I've known some sinners, he says, so distressed with fears of hell and thoughts of death and of eternal judgment that, to use the words of one terrible preacher, they have been, and I think he means they're not a, a very bad preacher, but a preacher who terrifies, they have been shaken over the mouth of hell by their collar and have almost felt the torments of the pit before they went there. But that's not in itself repentance. Some people have felt that terror and still been lost. Any repentance that keeps you from believing in Christ is a repentance that needs to be repented of. Any repentance that makes you think Christ will not save you goes beyond the truth and against the truth, and the sooner you are rid of it, the better. So, not so much a terror of hell is true repentance. And then again, a false repentance there is, which leads men to hardness of heart and despair. And again, all of these are pushing us in more or less the same direction. Spurgeon says here that the repentance that sinks a man low as hell is of no use except there is with it the faith also that lifts him as high as heaven, and the two are perfectly consistent with one another. So he says, don't despair, don't decide that you're past hope and there's no point hearing the word of God anymore. And then you've shut your ears to the gospel because you've already decided that you're too bad for it. No, he says, a man may loathe and detest himself, and all the while he may know that Christ is able to save and has saved him. In fact, this is how true Christians live. Hear the balance that he brings. They repent as bitterly for sin as if they knew they should be damned for it, but they rejoice as much in Christ as if sin were nothing at all. And those two lines meet in a blessed place, the stripping off of repentance and the clothing of faith. There's the repentance that, that pulls you apart and the faith that puts you back together. It's an absolute recognition of the sinfulness of sin, not just in theory but in my own heart, and a recognition that in itself this is vile and foul and loathsome and I deserve to be damned for that which I have been brought to hate, and in the very same act and out of the very same heart, a clinging to Jesus Christ that delights in the damning sin having been entirely put away, cleansed in Jesus Christ so that we stand accepted in the Beloved. And that's where he wants to take us, that the repentance we must understand in terms of what it really is. This is what he says. The repentance which is here commanded is the result of faith. It is born at the same time with faith. They are twins, and to say which is the elder born passes my knowledge. It is a great mystery. Faith is before repentance in some of its acts, and repentance before faith in another view of it, the fact being that they come into the soul together. Now, 
a repentance which makes me weep and abhor my past life because of the love of Christ which has pardoned it, is the right repentance. Do you hear that? Do you hear that, friends? A repentance which makes me weep and abhor my past life because of the love of Christ which has pardoned it, is the right repentance. When I can say, my sin is washed away by Jesus' blood, and then repent because I so sinned as to make it necessary that Christ should die, that dove-eyed repentance which looks at his bleeding wounds and feels that her heart must bleed because she wounded Christ, that broken heart that breaks because Christ was nailed to the cross for it, that is the repentance which brings us salvation. So, saving repentance is the result of faith. Again, the repentance which makes us avoid present sin because of the love of God who died for us. This also is saving repentance. If I avoid sin today, he says, because I'm afraid of being lost if I commit it, that's not the repentance of a child of God. But when I avoid it and seek to lead a holy life because Christ loved me and gave himself for me, and because I'm not my own but am bought with a price, this is the work of the Spirit of God. It's what we sometimes call evangelical repentance. It's a repentance that is provoked, if you like, by, by God's mercy in Jesus Christ. It's, it's a cross-centered repentance. And again, that change of mind that after carelessness, which leads me to resolve that in future I will live like Jesus and will not live under the lusts of the flesh because he has redeemed me, not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with his own precious blood, that's the repentance which will save me and the repentance which he asks of me. That's a, a repentance which makes you not only say, I'm sorry that I've done it, but God helping me, I will never do it again. This is the only repentance we have to preach. Not law and terrors, not despair, not driving men to self-murder. This is the terror of the world which worketh death. But godly sorrow is a sorrow unto salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, the second half of the command, believe the gospel. Faith, he says, means trust in Christ. Now again, he says, some have preached this trust in Christ so well and so fully that I can but admire their faithfulness and bless God for them, yet there is a difficulty and a danger. It may be that in preaching simple trust in Christ as being the way of salvation, they may omit to remind the sinner that no faith can be genuine, but such as is perfectly consistent with repentance for past sin. And so again here, you've got this doctrinal precision, this gospel fervor, and this pastoral wisdom bound together. Don't preach a faith that is separate from repentance, says Spurgeon, because they belong together. No repentance is true but that which consorts with faith, which walks arm in arm with faith. No faith is true but that which is linked with the hearty and sincere repentance on account of past sin. A faith without repenting is not the faith of the Bible, just like a repenting without believing is not the repentance of the Bible. Our faith is penitent. Our, our penitence is believing. No faith is true but that which is linked with a hearty and sincere repentance on account of past sin. So there is this turning from sin to Christ, and always it holds together. 
Some people, says Spurgeon, have a faith which leads them to no hatred of sin. Sin doesn't bother them. Sin's not an issue. Do you call that faith, he says? If any of you have such a faith as this, I pray God to turn it out bag and baggage. It's of no good to you. The sooner you're cleaned out of it, the better for you. For only when this sandy foundation shall be all washed away, perhaps you may then begin to build upon the rock. You see, Spurgeon says, what's your repentance? Is it a repentance that leads you to look out of self to Christ and to Christ only? On the other hand, a faith that leads you to true repentance, to hate the very thought of sin, so that the dearest idol you have known, whatever it may be, you desire to tear from its throne that you may worship Christ and Christ only, paraphrasing a hymn, be assured of this, that nothing short of this repenting and believing will be of any use to you at the last. And so he's back to his text, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, in the words of Christ, repent and believe the gospel, trust Christ to save you and lament that you need to be saved and mourn because this need of yours has put the Saviour to open shame, to frightful sufferings and to a terrible death. Here then are our first two points. It's a command. It's a command that explains itself. This is what repenting is. This is what believing is. His third point, the commands of Christ are of the most reasonable character. Is it unreasonable to demand that someone should repent? Is it unreasonable to say you must believe? God, against whom we have rebelled, says Spurgeon, who is our liege sovereign and monarch, seeth it to be inconsistent with the dignity of his kingship to absolve an offender who expresses no contrition. And I say again then, is this a harsh, exacting, unreasonable command? If God is our liege sovereign, if God is our creator, if God is the one to whom we are accountable, is it unreasonable that that God should say, in extending my mercy toward you, it is needful that you should repent? Why, dear friends, asks Spurgeon, do you expect to be saved while you are in your sins? Are you to be allowed to love your iniquities and yet go to heaven? What, you think to have poison in your veins and yet be healthy? What, man, keep the thief indoors and yet be acquitted of dishonesty? Be stained and yet thought spotless? Harbour the disease and still be in health? Ridiculous! Absurd! Repentance is founded on the necessity of things. The demand for a change of heart is absolutely necessary. It is but a reasonable service. And the same is true of faith. For a creature to believe its creator is but a duty. Altogether apart from the promise of salvation, God has a right to demand that you should believe what he says. And what is it that he's asking you to believe? Is God asking you to believe something in his language, Spurgeon's language, hideous, contradictory, irrational? Not at all. It's the blood of Christ by which God is just and the justifier of the ungodly. Christ is, in, God is providing in Christ all that is needful in a way that magnifies his justice and his mercy, his goodness and his truth. Is it consistent then with God's dignity for him to save you and allow you to remain an unbelieving sinner, doubting his grace, mistrusting his love, slandering his character, doubting the efficacy of his blood and of his plea? No, it's the most reasonable thing in the world that God should demand of you that you believe in Christ. And he does that now, says Spurgeon. Repent and believe the gospel. And you hear him now pleading, Oh, friends, oh, friends, how sad, how sad is the state of man's soul when he will not do this. 
We may preach to you, but you never will repent and believe the gospel. We may lay God's command like an axe to the root of the tree, but reasonable as these commands are, you will still refuse to give God his due, and you will go on in your sins. You will not come unto him that you may have life. And, back to his point, it is here the Spirit of God must come in to work in the souls of the elect to make them willing in the day of his power. Yes, these commands are eminently reasonable, but until the Holy Spirit makes us understand them and appreciate their reasonableness, still we will fail to grasp it. And then it is a command which demands immediate obedience. And here's the same kind of preacher pressure. I do not know how it is. Let us preach as we may. We cannot lead others to think that there is any great alarm, that there is any reason why they should think about their souls now. He talks about uh, a military exercise on Wimbledon Common, a, a military review, and him talking with a friend about the fact they could hear the gunfire and the different reaction they'd have if they knew it were a war. He says the same thing happens with preaching. People listen to it, but they don't think it's real. They don't think it's true. But he says God's demand is the solemn reality. And if you could but hear it as you should be heard, you would escape from, as it should be heard, you would escape from your lives and flee for refuge to the hope that is set before you in the gospel. And you would do this today. This is the command of Christ, I say, today. Today is God's time. It's your time. It's the only time you've got. You don't have a tomorrow. You can't promise yourself another hour. It is the best time, he says. It's it's the time that you, you've got now, the, the opportunity you have now, the moment you've got now. You'll never find it easier to repent than now. You'll never find it easier to believe than now. It's what are you waiting for? What better moment do you want? And then this command has immediate power and continual force. It's advice to the young beginner. It's advice to the old gray-headed Christian. It's what we need to know every step of the way. He speaks of Roland Hill, whom I think he might call, he says, I might call St. Roland, who when he was near death said he had one regret, and that was that a dear friend who'd lived with him for 60 years would have to leave him at the gate of heaven. That dear friend, said he, is repentance. Repentance has been with me all my life, and I think I shall drop a tear, said that good man, as I go through the gates to think that I can repent no more. Repentance, then, is the daily and hourly duty of a man who believes in Christ, and as we walk by faith from the wicket gate to the celestial city, the John Bunyan imagery, so our right-hand companion all the journey through must be repentance. Christian, if you think you're past repenting, you've outgrown repenting, that you don't need to repent anymore, you haven't understood God, you haven't understood your own heart, you haven't grasped your own sin, you haven't seen the very nature of repenting. The more the Christian man knows of Christ's love, the more will he hate himself to think that he has sinned against it. Every doctrine of the gospel will make a Christian man repent. Now, Spurgeon is not for one moment suggesting that we become not a Christian again. What he's saying is Christianity is to be repenting. Sinning, repenting, and believing, he says. Three things will keep with us until we die. Sinning will stop at the River Jordan. Repentance will die triumphing over the dead body of sin. 
and faith itself, though perhaps it may cross the stream, will cease to be so needful as it has been here, for there we shall see even as we are seen, and shall know even as we are known. And then, as so often, he summons all his energies for his last appeal. I send you away when I have once again solemnly declared my master's will to you this morning. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Talks to those who are foreigners who've come in to listen to him. Talks to those who are from the provincial towns in England. What are you here for? He says, this is what you need to hear. This is what you should have come for, that there will come a day when a congregation gathers made up of all the world and on the great white throne the judge shall sit and nobody who has heard this sermon will be able to make the excuse and say, I did not hear the gospel. I did not know what I must do to be saved. It is simple. Repent and believe the gospel. Trust Christ. Believe him willing and able to save you. And then he says, What will you do in that day if you have believed? There you will be thanking God that you yielded up the weapons of your proud rebellion by repentance. You'll be thanking God that you looked to Christ and took him to be your saviour from first to last. Spurgeon says in closing, I have not spoken in my own name. If I did, you wouldn't care one jot for me. But if I have preached what Christ preached, repent and believe the gospel. I charge you then by the living God. I charge you by the world's redeemer. I charge you by the cross of Calvary and by the blood which stained the dust at Golgotha. Obey this divine message and you shall have eternal life. But refuse it and on your own heads be your blood forever and ever. This is the language, this is the passion, the earnestness of a man who is aiming at souls. He launched into this sermon with with barely a breath. He told us that there is a command that we must heed and it's that command to which he returns at the end. He believes what he is saying. You must repent and believe. That is God's word. Repenting and believing explain themselves And he has helped us to see what they're telling us. Then he says, it's a reasonable thing that you should be expected by God to turn from your sins and trust in his son. You must do so now. Now is the right time. Now is the only time. Now is the best time. Now is your time. Now is God's time. And you must go on receiving this command, responding to it, not just immediately coming into the kingdom, but continually as you go on for your repenting and your believing are the two step, two feet by which you will step your way under God to glory. And then that closing plea, will you come? I charge you now, it is God's command and you must hear it. If we learn nothing else from this, perhaps as preachers, as Christians, but our need to make clear that this is God's will for sinners, then we've learned well. But I hope we've learned from this for ourselves also, that we need to take to heart this gospel command, that having heeded it, if we're believers, we must go on obeying God. And if we've not come before, that now is the moment, now is the time to hear not only the entreaty, the beseeching, the reasoning, the pleading of God, but to respond in obedience to that divine and gracious command to repent of our sins and to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. May God in his mercy help each one of us to do so, that we may be found praising God at the great day. 
I trust this has been a benefit to you, as I hope it's been to me. I believe it has. Next week, sermons 465 to 471, and sermon 469 is our our, t- our sermon for, for the week, our featured sermon, What Meanest Thou, O Sleeper? That's sermon 469. Do join us on the podcast. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at Reading Spurgeon, or you can go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts and sign up for a weekly newsletter where you'll get all that information, God willing, week on week. Thank you for listening, and may God bless each one of us. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.